Welcome to Studio of the Future. Eliza Gilkinson writes gritty, poignant songs with mesmerizing melodies and razor-sharp poetic lyrics. She refers to her new 12-track album, Secularia, as a spare urban folk approach. Eliza is respected for challenging established standards of thought with her themes of empowerment, the impact of theology on gender inequality and politics, and her thoughtful philosophical perspective as shared in her modern-day non-religious hymns. She is a two-time Grammy nominee and was inducted into the Austin Music Hall of Fame. She has appeared on NPR, Austin City Limits, and toured with Richard Thompson, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and Patty Griffin. Her songs have been covered by Joan Baez, Tom Rush, Roseanne Cash, and Consperari. What a truly beautiful and revelatory album you've created, and thank you for the gift of your beautiful music. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. One of the songs on your album, Reunion, is so incredibly meaningful, and I was wondering if you could talk about this song, and what is it that draws you to choose which story to focus on when you write a song? I think the story chooses me in a lot of ways. I, I think if I'm moved, then I feel the song there. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times that just depends on whether, you know, the story caught you mm -hmm. or not. And so in the case of Reunion, that was just, I was playing around with this little um, piano idea and I'd actually put Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot to mm -hmm. music. And it had this whole piano thing that it was built around, and I, and I was loving it. It was all about looking <laughs> back at Earth from space and mm. realizing how small, how tiny in the, in the, in the context mm -hmm. we are and how, how full of ourselves we are, but really seeing ourselves from space, how insignificant. And so that song was about that. And I had sent the song out to Carl Sagan's estate, and I got a very very firm letter back from them no. just saying cease and desist. Really? Sagan had in his um, will very strict instructions. None of his words were, were to be put to music. And why, I was, do you, why do you think that is? I think a lot of it was the time. You know, you think about Woody Guthrie. Mm -hmm. This all happened, you know, uh, Wilco and everybody discovering Woody's music and mm -hmm. putting it to Slade and everybody putting his mm -hmm. words to music. That was all happening in the, what, in the mid-2000s? Mm. Sagan died, I'm I'm sure, I think in the late 90s or so. Mm. Or I think at the time, it, they were more protective about it. Now it's like, take the words to the people and let them play with them. And I thought these guys would be more uh, flexible, like let it go out into the world and let it turn into memes and, you know, whatever, like loop it and, you yeah. know, all, and everything. But they were very, you know, the estate had to go with the instructions. So it was very clear. Mm. And I was so bummed because the song was like a important piece in the record. It was a very mm. atheist but so humble atheist at the same time, so in awe of the universe and of all creation mm. without, you know, ever having to name a belief system. And I thought this was like an important song on the record. And so I was bummed about that. And I thought, finally, I rallied. And I just was like, I'm going to write a song that is <laughs> even means more to me than even that. And mm -hmm. so I sat down and I started playing around with the same piano part and changing it and changing it. And right at that time, that day, on the internet came this news that these 26 Nigerian women 
had their boat had sunk. And they, they were, were in a young, little rubber right? they dinghy. They were young girls. They too. were all between the ages of fourteen and eighteen. Every girl in that dinghy was mm-hmm. between the ages of fourteen and eighteen. On that day alone in the Mediterranean, I think something like seven hundred people mm. boat people sank, and not everybody died. But in that boat, every girl died. And and since then, I've been reading about these terrible dinghies that they're buying in China. That these boats are not. They just sink. They're not they're even not put together. Yes, yeah. they're not seaworthy exactly, mm. but they're they're cheap, and that's what they're getting. And this was so disturbing to me. And what got me, what hooked me on the song was, it was their age, that they were all either in the slave trade. No one actually fully knows. Were they just refugees escaping Liberia or Libya? But the but the fact is that. When you have 26 girls in one boat, all between ages 14 and 18, it's most likely slave trade. Mm. So, and then I saw, I began to imagine the boat because I was playing with this piano part. And I, it was like I was just coming in like on a drone or something. I was over the boat and I looked down. And it's hard for me to even talk about it. They all were the age of my granddaughter, and it just, I saw my granddaughter in the boat, and I, I just lost it. It was like, these, they were all somebody's child. They were, they were, they were all our grandchildren. They were all our daughters and our sisters, and they were some mother somewhere didn't know where her girl was, and it just killed me. And the story was gone in two days. It was gone. That was just one more terrible day, one more terrible story. And we over here, you know, politically, we are not directly responsible for refugees escaping Libya. And yet culturally, humanitarianly, <laughs> humanly, we are responsible. We have to market. We have to, we have to care. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to... Find ways to not care to to well, even launder. In your, in your song, you talk about covering our ears. Yes, so, so you, they so we can't hear them anymore. And mm-hmm. it's there are so many ways that we can cover our ears and mm-hmm. our eyes and and move on to something else. And there are so many pressing things to address in our own lives. And and this what I what I'm concerned with is this sense of laundering that we do with capitalism. And we we figured out a way to launder our our money and our actions and our policies so that we don't have to look at how they're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Money is allowed to move across continents freely without any interruption. People are not. Mm-hmm. And and somehow we figured out a way to make it so we don't have to account for it. So this was an accounting. That That's what it felt like to me for that song. And that's what I think is so beautiful about your songwriting is that you are capturing these tender moments, you know, that really touch our hearts and wake us up to what's happening around us. Because, you know, much like vegetarians brought to the forefront that meat is, isn't just something you get in a package at the grocery store. There's an actual brutalization Same. going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And once people started becoming aware of what's happening to these creatures, these animals, yeah. and how horrid it is, yeah. uh, vegetarianism caught on more so, and it's, people were more aware of it. It's true. The visuals yeah. do make a difference if mm-hmm. you... if people don't cover their eyes and ears. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. I mean, maybe artists, what we're supposed to do is just inspire people not to to uh, shut down. Mm-hmm. That may be our only job. <laughs> um, well, you did have a quote on, on co-op. I was listening to you and you were talking about that it may or may not be the responsibility of a songwriter. 
right to bring these things to the forefront right and that you it was very important to you that when you wrote a song you wanted to write a very good song you wanted to write a song with great poetry and you even said you wanted the melody to sing and and yeah. i thought that was really beautiful <laughs> and because you didn't want it just to be a craft you if somebody was going to do something do it well but it doesn't necessarily have to be a political song i i think it would be more moving to have a great song that had all the ingredients that make a song great because that speaks to something archetypical and to have a message that isn't a great song is not going to come across. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, there's something about it that just shuts people down. Mm-hmm. So I mean, shuts me down mm-hmm. anyway. So yeah, a great song moves me to feel things, mm-hmm. and and maybe our responsibility is to be good at what we do. You mm-hmm. know, to be the best we can be at what at what we do. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's not our responsibility to always just you know hammer home a message. Mm-hmm. I th- that would be unfortunate if that's all we did. I was aware of how, you know, you're very acclaimed as a folk singer, but a lot of this music transcends even that and even pop music because I felt like these were old friends. I felt that, you know, the melodies are so familiar and yet they're all new and the, and the lyrics are so, um, they just enmesh me with what you're saying. And I really care. I find myself humming the songs. So for me, you're, you may be writing a political message in the folk song kind of genre and yet you transcend that into great music. Oh, thank you. That, that would certainly be one of my goals. I, I never did, uh, like you, I never really f- fit exactly we in a misfits, genre. We are misfits, you and I. <laughs> yes, we are. And, and that has always been my blessing and my curse, as I'm sure you would agree. And it's because I don't fit this typical box, and so then I get rejected. But at the same time, it's expansive, mm-hmm. so I can fit in a lot of places. So... It's just always been my style, and my dad was even as a folk singer who was very well known as a folk singer. He never he was the all the folk you know Nazis. <laughs> as well, they I used was reading like Trini, Trini Lopez and yeah. the Weavers, and you yeah. know, and how they they didn't really take him seriously because they he didn't. was writing for Disney and at he, the same time. That's right, and he wrote pop music. He wrote <laughs> pop songs all day, all night. Marianne was kind of pop song and pop. He was taking something from the Caribbean and turning it into a pop song. You yeah, know? I, I was pretty excited when I saw Harry Belafonte yeah. sang Marianne. I was like, I was really pretty cool. cool. <laughs> oh, I know. My dad really was. He was the one in the family that went global. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that's a really good transition for us because my next question to you was about Solitary Singer, the first track on your album. And it was a poem written by your grandmother, uh, Phoebe Hunter Gilkison. And it was co-written with your father, uh, Terry Gilkison, who I'm assuming he wrote the music, correct? Yes. Uh, okay. He wrote the music. Um, for it, yeah. And and it's a very poignant song, very very pretty song. And I wanted to kind of parallel these two things. You've talked a lot about how vulnerability is important to a songwriter or to an artist in general. And so I was curious about your thoughts in conjunction with the fact that your family has all been musicians. It seems like, or at least all art artistic. And to be an artist, you have to be vulnerable. So I'm wondering, do you think vulnerability is hereditary, as in <laughs> nature, or is it nurtured because it's gone on in your lineage for four generations? All right, that's a, it's a good good question um, because what you know, do we come here a blank slate, or you know, are the 
her genes involved or uh, what I mean, I, the relationship with a, your parents? Yeah, and, I would think a big part of it was like uh, you talk about when you were four and you were watching your dad, I think, in Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, campfire and you went and stood next to him and, and you I were like, out. I want to be in the zone here. This yeah. is really cool. I, that's one of my faces. first conscious memories is re, re, standing next to my dad while mm-hmm. he's performing to people in a very intimate uh, setting, looking out from where he was sitting and seeing these people just going, whoa. <laughs> and feeling this thing going on between him and them, and that it blew my mind. And I and that I remember thinking, this is something. Mm-hmm. I, this I recognized, and maybe I saw my future or, mm-hmm. or you know a desire or something. But boy, I don't know if if really all we are is just cradle to to grave. You know, if it just all we know is that span of time, there just have to be a million things that influence. We can't. I mean. I'm I'm not one to say it's destiny or fate. I mm-hmm. think I would just say um, certainly the fact that I grew up in a musical environment it had to affect me. Certainly. And then I think that there's probably some kind of genes yeah. that, go, that get involved with art. I have a letter from my grandmother, the same grandmother who wrote this great song. I have a letter from her in the 70s where she said, now, Lisa, because that was my nickname. (laughs) Now, Lisa, it's time for you to put away this childish music career idea of yours and get a job. Really? Yeah. She said, now, you could become a singer in the schools, like our school over here at Pemberton Farms. You could get a job teaching the the students to sing. Or she said, the other thing you could do is make aprons. What? <laughs> you can she be said, a singer or an apron maker. Yeah, those are that, your two those are like She's had this idea it would be because she would love to wear aprons where she could put her glasses. It was like, everybody's going to want one of those. You, you know, I have to say there is some of that. I should be wearing an apron all the time with all these glasses. I, I know. And all the things, I my car keys and everything. I know. I want an apron. It's a, it's a great business you know model. Girlfriend, you should make some Eliza aprons and sell them at your shows. That's it's a little extra my, income, right? You're right. It would be, it'd be my swag. It. <laughs> I get t-shirts. They're I so old. Looking for swag idea. Aprons. I'm telling you, you could go places with that. Okay, so also I noted, as I'm sure many people have, you have a lot of spectacular guests. You have an incredible array of studio musicians, but you also have on backing vocals Sean Colvin and Betty Sue and Jimmy LaFave and Tosca on strings and Pastor Sam Butler. So I, I'm going to ask you several questions around that. And the first one, of course, would be... Losing Jimmy LaFave. Yeah. And um, how hard that's been on our community and in the world. And I wanted to, to talk about the song he sings with you mm. on, which, uh, if you wouldn't mind talking about that. And how was that experience? I'm, I'm going to guess that was the last song he recorded with someone. You know, it's amazing how much stuff Jimmy recorded in that last year. I mean, he was bent on getting making as much music as possible i think if he had one imperative it was that make as much music sing as much as possible and you know he didn't you know, he's diagnosed a, a year before he shared it with any with the, with the mm-hmm. gang so it was a, a year of him just but of course some of us knew and so I, and he and i had been talking about doing something together for years and I and I was definitely feeling like I, if I don't do this it's going to be one of those, another thing that I'll regret uh, that I didn't get a chance to do and so I I'm we made darn sure that we'd get this song down and I'd been waiting for the right song this song seemed because he loves to do, he loved to do covers and 
And I thought he would appreciate the sentiment of this song, especially which is down the, by the riverside. Down by the riverside, and it's a great old anti-war song as mm-hmm. well, and it's a great folk gospel tune. And so I invited him to come, but I rewrote the the lyrics. But I invited him to come and do it, and just a few months before he passed, and and he he was on it right away. It was like we all felt the time was of the essence, so we worked it out, and within days he was there. And was this and, at your home? At, at my at my son's at, studio, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Studio Forty Five. That's his little place in South Austin, and uh, so Jimmy came over there, and the first, his first reaction was so funny because he goes, "You got that song? I forgot about that song." Like, he was a little jealous because I he gave me a little little shit for it because it was like you got that before I did, you know, and he was like, oh. because he, because of course, yeah, it's such the, a Jimmy song. It's such yeah. a Jimmy song, and then at the end, it has this opportunity because he, he really liked my approach. It's kind of up. It's a yes. up. I was song. really surprised when I heard, especially if I may say this album for the most part is very intimate. It's very buoyant. It, yes, yeah. it's it's a somber song. I mean, it's a somber treatment to a very mm-hmm. buoyant song. Mm-hmm. So he was surprised about that. And, I, and now live, we do a whole Jimmy LaFave up-tempo thing at the end. Oh, oh that's Riverside. So because that's what he would do. <laughs> yeah, you know, and we had everybody to, singing it. Yeah, yeah, we had to have a Jimmy LaFave ending. Yes. Hello. Oh. So that's, that's I think everybody gets a kind of a kick out yeah. of that at the end. Because that's so what he would do. But he came in the studio and just, he did three passes all the way through. Cisco and I both agreed, let's not, let's not get into the details mm-hmm. here. It's, it, it's, it, we don't need to go, can you go back and redo yeah. this or that? It was more like, we got so much stuff here. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be hard to choose. And mm-hmm. he, he did several versions where he really went Jimmy LaFave on him ah. and trilled out. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he pulled back in a little bit and there was something in his, just in his tenderness. That, That's what I was going to say. It, yeah. You can really hear this this love in his voice. And it's a letting go. Like a, a goodbye letter. It was had a letting voice. go, exactly. Mm-hmm. Where Whereas some of his other songs, you know, he would really holler them yeah. or just really, because he had a set of pipes that could mm-hmm. just could not be, they were incomparable. No, he, he doesn't yeah. like anybody. No, not like anybody. But there was a softness, a gentleness yeah. to him. He um, went all tender on it. It was, it's, and, and yeah. the two of you together are, of course, quite lovely. Oh, um, so sweet. And the trade off at the end is really beautiful. Oh, I wish I had, it, it, it was so fast. The whole thing went so fast that now I kind of wished, oh, I wish I'd given him verse two. And some, <laughs> you know, I wish I'd done all these things, but yeah. it was, it, it really ended up being what it was, you no, know. No, it's perfect. Oh, it's thanks. utterly perfect, yeah. really. And my next question was Tosca, the string quartet. Yeah. They bring so much atmosphere to this new yeah. album. Have, Have you, you ever done anything with yes, them? Yes. They played on my album Motherload. Oh, I think they played awesome. on something else. I had to buy them a lot of snacks. That's what I remember. It was pretty funny. <laughs> they sent over a list of the snacks they would need. That's, <laughs> they just finished touring with David Byrne, so I don't know. They if had a rider. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was the biggest rider I ever got. I was oh, like, I that's... better get all these snacks. Oh. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they were great. They came in. They, you know, you know, you. Oh, know. they're amazing. Let's go back to you. I didn't mean to talk about me. No, no, I asked you. Emma, I was interested. Have you ever thought of touring just with them? I think that would be oh, so beautiful, just you and them. Oh God, wouldn't that, that be amazing? Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? I th- aren't there? There's. I have so many dreams of things. I'd, I hey, I'd love to have afford a grand piano too. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things I'd love to have and do. But mm-hmm. um, right now, I feel lucky that I can tour with one or two people mm-hmm. and afford to do that. So. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's a thing that would, but I mean you know there's a, that's a 
that's something you do in a performing arts theater or something. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. It would be really fun. And to, maybe the Texas Commission on the Arts could underwrite it or, you yeah. know, I don't know. There's possibilities. Yeah, yeah that's a great idea. And it Thank would you. be really fun. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's all I could think of when I was hearing the record. I was like, oh, man, that's a perfect pairing. Or oh. you and the Austin Symphony, but that's more of a one-off. But Tosca, yeah. you guys touring Well, I did the Conspirari, one Conspirari, and that was another opportunity that I, that I was so lucky to have mm. because it just was so fun to to put yourself into a different kind of setting and mm -hmm. see how that worked for you. And it was in, inspiring to try different things. And this was a... Great opportunity. I have to give a shout out to Chris Marsh who wrote the arrangement because I, I, I thought I was just going to invite you know a mm -hmm. bunch of string players in and, and say, oh, okay, so guys, he wrote out the string. I he, thought maybe they wrote out the arrangement, but wow, no, he he's he, amazing. He is amazing, and he he said. I was saying, oh, you know, I don't know. I was just thinking of having a few people over, and I bet I really don't know whether I should write. You know, try we should try to get an arranger to come in. And Chris said, hey can I have a crack at it? And I was, I didn't know his training or anything. And I just was like, well, sure. <laughs> and then it was like, afterwards, like, what did I just do? What if I don't like it? You know, what, what if I, and, and he, but boy, he just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. He came over to our house with like a keyboard and all these parts and everything. And we were, and trying to show us what the parts were. And I was like, I think I like that, but I'm not sure. And then finally it was a I started to get it, and then I started to really get what he was doing. He was doing these passing notes, a little dissonance that I never would have thought of, that mm -hmm. it just set it up in a certain way, and he had the sense of the ocean. It had visual uh, effect. It was. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was like how I had imagined it when I wrote it was that I was above the ocean looking down on this mm -hmm. boat just... Well, twisting and, and, and it's really beautiful how your piano part is i'm assuming that's you playing yeah it's so rolling like i i yeah. and that it starts with the piano and you it, it felt like i was at sea and yeah. then that the strings do this atmospheric thing against it was really beautiful because normally you get the strings to do this kind of what the piano was doing right, right but they so go it was, against it it's really lovely yeah, i know that's really so really true. effective cool i'm glad you um, liked it i good thought job, that chris. was brilliant good job chris <laughs> exactly <laughs> lastly tell us about pastor sam butler on sanctuary because when it got to the middle of the song and he does this kind of keening thing, yeah. it, it's at first it's like kind of sorrowful, but then it's almost this joyful keening, which I know are opposing things. But yeah, no. And then he comes in and sings, ah, it's just YouTube. It was a handoff. Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. And what happened was Sam cut that song on his record and I had somebody just t alerted me to it on Facebook and I found it and I was like, I had never thought of that song as a gospel song or having gospel potential. It just seemed like a folk song to me. Mm -hmm. And and to hear him sing it and with that, I mean, his voice, uh, I mean, yeah. he, he was 25 years with the Blind Boys of Alabama. And there's stuff online, there's uh, YouTube, there's stuff of him just... His singing is so amazing. It's so phenomenal. It really is. It's just and another he, world. He actually sounds... It not only keening and not only this joyful keening, but he does this scat keening. I've I never know. heard before. I was like, I know. wait, now he's scatting? That's I know. How do you do that? <laughs> and only if you're re for real can you right. do that. And that was the thing I realized with that song is I thought, I want to do that song for this record. But I, but I can't. I don't. I don't really enjoy when white people sing mm. like black people. Mm -hmm. I, I most. It just feels like one more thing we're co-opting, and so I, and and plus we just don't. We're not. That's just 
unless you're really culturally brought up into it, which some people are and they do mm-hmm. it great, and, they, and white people can pull it off, but I can't. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even want to go there. So I thought, how can I want to bring this side of it into the song, but there's no way to do that without Sam. Mm-hmm. So, but I, cause I could really hear, I could hear how the arrangement could work and I could hear the handoff. And obviously he could too. He, mm-hmm. I sent him because I wasn't there for the. Um, he, I had to send it to Minneapolis for his, his part. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wrote them. I just noticed it the other day on my computer. I wrote out a map of how I saw it, and then and they took my map and then they just went <laughs> off on their, <laughs> and did their own their thing. thing, you know. <laughs> and they sent it back, and you went, yeah. what? I go, wait a minute, that's so awesome. (laughs) And we had to do some moving around of parts to get it, Mm -hmm. and we had to bring in the bass player, the bass singer, who did, I thought, great job Uh, just really mm -hmm. holding down that bottom end. But mostly what was amazing is Sam. I mean, Mm -hmm. he... He he made it his, and and uh, without ever ma- making me feel like um, you know comparative, yeah, less than. You know, yeah. It, mm-hmm. it was the joy of singing, and that's yes. what comes out, and that's why he can get away with scat singing and on <sighs> the joy and the keening, all yes. those things. You're both being natural to who you are, and, yeah, and that comes exactly. it's very authentic. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, that's he. That's he's authentic completely, and I actually had a conversation with him too because. Uh, he he loves that song and and he he wants to hear some, you know, more of my songs as he's getting ready to make another record. And I said, Sam, I just got to tell you, I'm not a Christian. And <laughs> and I, he, he said, well, you could have fooled me. Yeah. And that's because he's going. Sam and I are speaking another language, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. was not and he wasn't worried about whether I had you know been baptized or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just thinking she's talking the language of love here. Yeah, and, exactly. And and also acknowledging a, a, a higher power. I never name and the whole record. I never name a higher power. You <laughs> are like reading my notes, like, and you're on the other <laughs> side of the room, but. That is crazy because I was about to ask you, you sing, I have no God, no King or Savior, no world beyond the setting sun. I'll give my thanks for one more day here and go to ground when my time has come on your song conservation. And along with the name of the Lord and Sanctuary, all these songs, your album is so profound in in confronting religious doctrines. And I'm wondering, do you think, um, A, that your music is helping that shift? And do you think people are actually actually shifting in terms of their perceptions of spirit? I think this album is reflecting the shift. I don't know that it's inspiring anybody to do that, but I think I I wanted to find music for people like me. I wanted to write music for people like me who do want to honor something greater, but they don't want to be either A, new agey and, Mm -hmm. and airheaded about it, or, or I'm sorry if I equate those two, but <laughs> one or the other or whatever. But they don't want to come up with a bunch of platitudes mm-hmm. about it. They, or they, as Sarah Bird says, she calls that woo-woo. Yeah. She said that I didn't want to be woo-woo. I wanted to be, but I wanted to celebrate this, some kind of higher power or some kind of greater intelligence or just the mystery this itself. this human connection of when you feel, like when you're in front of an audience and you're singing a song and you just feel that swell of Communion, right? Communion, exactly. Yeah. And and I wanted to honor that without ever having any religion brought in. I wanted it to be gender inclusive. I wanted it to be race inclusive, all inclusive. Because these are the things we share, and so that was the point of the record, really. So, and but I did find that I was going to have to confront ideology. I was going to have to confront God as male. I was going to have to deconstruct that a little bit, mm-hmm. and and I do it in the beginning of the record. But I I felt like it was important to 
in, that for in order to honor this thing, I was going to have to do, do a little naming and, and calling out as and, well. And you do that in Emmanuel too, because that's tell, right. Tell people what you did there. Well, that really is the idea of well, the Emmanuel is a very masculine. It, it, the name actually means God is with us. God and and so. I thought, I love the song, and I wrote it. It's an older song of mine, but I never really knew where it, what it was about even. I just, it came and it went, and I, and I kept it over on the sidelines because I always thought it was an interesting song. But I wanted to put it on the record, but I just didn't like it that, that it was a, a masculine inner, even if, and I thought, it's God within us, God mm -hmm. within us, but then it was still God, you know, and I thought for a woman... How can we change that? And so I just added that E-L-L-E -L -L -E at the end there, <laughs> Emmanuel. Yeah. And suddenly everything shifted for me with this song. It was like, it became the story of all of us women that we have. And in time, I went wandering into the world of men. And though I knew the sacred songs, my separate dreams began. So it was all that we separated ourselves from ourselves, mm -hmm. from our identity, from our own spirituality and mm -hmm. our, our, our own strength and power within and it be we masculinized it and how did that play out in our lives are the men the relationships the god as male we we just it played out infinitely as played out well it's it's it, we're less than at some level yeah we carry that in dominant subordinate mm -hmm. it it's primal and it mm -hmm. and it's it's so hard to to get out of it um uh, it's even though we consciously want to, we have to really work to to change that. And I didn't really want to, I don't want goddess to be it either. Mm -hmm. I, I just want it to be beyond both those things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be masculine or feminine to me. In Emmanuel, it did because it's the story of a woman coming to herself. And it's the story of all of us recognizing our, our own sacred space. And, and so that, that really changed the song for me. It became my favorite song on the record as a result. And how, how brilliant that this one little, one little addition of several letters shifted the whole song for you. It clicked, something clicked in me, and I hope shifted a paradigm for mm -hmm. me, because a lot of this was just to challenge myself to, to get out of my own paradigms, it, it, to recognize, too, that even as we rape and plunder the earth herself, <laughs> that this is how the level at which this God is male is playing out. Mm -hmm. So it's it's serious business to dismantle this 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 monster <laughs> yeah. and it's a big uh oppressive mark on humanity it, exactly historically well and presently yeah i saw you and mark Hallman, who we can talk about later but you were playing a song you wrote called calling all angels which made me think of 1991 when jane sibbery had calling all angels yes and i know you've done uh you've collaborated with john gorka and lucy kaplansky and me, ian matthews and i wondered if you and jane sibbery had ever <laughs> we've had a laugh about it <laughs> um actually and i i and I like to say that I wrote my Calling on Angels before she did, did. but but hers it was a better song. Oh wow! <laughs> no, I really songs. do. I think her song is fabulous. I and mine was well. A, the only difference is she has Katie Lang on hers. Yeah, no. And also, she, hers was more earthbound. Mine was like still trying to get something to come from outside. I, I think mine was me a little more woo woo than hers, and I liked how <laughs> earthbound hers was. Yeah. But. Um, I, it it was funny. We've had a few laughs about it uh, the few times that our paths have crossed. I just I could see you two writing together. You have so many similar. 
philosophies and you're <laughs> like, both I don't think really intelligent, uh, amazing musicians. And I just, I think that would be. She's so voices. abstract, though, as an artist. She's yeah. very abstract as a person, too. So I don't think co writing <laughs> is going <laughs> to. Maybe think, you could text back and forth yeah, and come maybe, up with something. Maybe so, right. <laughs> I was noticing that you raised uh, money on Kickstarter mm -hmm. to yes, your fans, which, and it was quite a large sum, uh, which is always exciting. And then I also noticed it came out on Red House, the yeah. label. So I was wondering, are you licensing it to them? Yes. I'm licensing, and at the time... And explain to people Yes, what when doing. I started out, I wasn't sure because Red House, my label, had, had, was, had just been sold to Compass. And um, so when I was starting to make the record and, and crowdfunding for it, I wasn't sure if I was going to go on that way. And I, and I was really at a, you know, I'm getting to an age where I don't, I don't want to go out and stump around looking for a record deal. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, maybe I'm going to put this out by myself and find a distributor. Or I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but um, I know I want to make the record of my life. I don't mm -hmm. want to. And you have. Yeah, thank you. I, I just didn't want to edit, you know, what I was going to do based on money. And I'm, I'm not, I don't have the kind of money to just go ahead and make a record first and then figure out what I'm going to do with it later, because it's really hard to make your money back on, on Especially recordings. nowadays. And yeah. a lot of people don't understand that streaming and other sources of income for musicians has changed dramatically. My income base is altered forever because I mean the the year before streaming happened and the year after was the difference between uh, having putting money in savings or not for the rest mm -hmm. of my career. Mm -hmm. I mean it really changed everything. Mm -hmm. So like and and what happened is that the only way we make any money anybody on any tier is by touring. So now touring is so competitive and you're dealing with the dinosaurs dropping down into our you know into what used to be our turf mm -hmm. and then we're and then we're making it difficult for uh, other people now we're moving in house concerts yes where we used to play theaters yes and, and the, the people who people are playing little theater and, the, like and people who do the house mm -hmm. concerts are being pushed out by us mm -hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. really uh, it's it's an un, unfortunate there's no, there's no place to grow your craft no and and practice in front of audiences and, and decide no. this song is finished or no it's not yeah. you don't get that anymore now it's all or we nothing we used to we used to do our records we well, i play my records out for a year before i even put them out I uh -huh. loved it. I loved going. By the time I went to the studio, we just whooped that yeah, thing Yeah, and you out. had your band was all prepared. Everybody, they was, knew, everybody they, was on the same yeah, page. It's been years since I've done yes, that. No. Uh, yeah, <laughs> really. And I feel for the young artists coming up, too. I mean, my God. But but Kickstarter is is really great for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there are many levels that it helps people get going. And it's... It, uh, I had at first. I was embarrassed. I was like thinking, "Oh, this is humiliating." I, you know, I've got to ask people to help me make well, a record. If you and... were embarrassed, let me just say your your uh, rewards are tremendous. <laughs> you were given away a Taylor guitar, and you were given away that Leo Kotke guitar, and you were, yeah. uh, and you could go visit your house and is it in Taos? Yeah, yeah. No, I had. Yeah, I mean, I had great reward. Your rewards packages, were, yeah, really, and you and you're doing four house concerts. Is that right? Well, we sold five. Oh my! And goodness. then uh, and then. And we just, other people just kept piling on, so we were oh. just gonna we we're just adding them to tours outside of oh, crowdfunding. So that actually was really good, but yeah, it no, it worked out great. But you know, it's interesting when I was looking at the Kickstarter models, the various crowdfunding models. I there's one that I can't remember which one it is that they take actually take twenty percent, and they they mm. claim that they. 
uh, get more coverage and that they get they they'll get you more money and all this stuff. And I we called them and they went to Facebook and they looked that I had X amount of followers and 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 they said well we we don't want to take you on because we don't think you'll you'll raise any money and and we we were like well okay screw you because maybe i only have five thousand here and five thousand there and five thousand on my email base but they're real fans (laughs) yeah and they're they've been good to me and so i i felt we could do it but i was nervous it's it's nerve-wracking setting a dollar figure because if you don't reach the dollar figure then you're like publicly humiliated it was risky but um, gosh, people were great about so it. So generous, you, you yeah. You, and she and my person Jana, I have to say, she ran a great campaign. So then you went to Compass uh, Red House. Oh and yes, said, and I'd like to license this to you. Yes, so you retain so, the ownership of the master. Exactly, mm-hmm. and and that was I, I've uh, all along one of the possibilities, and w- w- I, for me, really the best possibility, I think, to to license it because then I would own it, and then I would also participate mm-hmm. uh, in the sales and. And, and even also, placement. If some movie comes along and says, we want this song, you, yeah. have, you have ownership of that master and you can you do. control that. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. And and also, you're plugged into a company that already has distribution, which is, real, as you know, yeah. you, it's really hard to get them into any distribution network other than uh, Amazon and CD Baby or something. Yeah. It's and there's a lot of coordinating going on there. And also uh, a, a good distributor or a good label that takes you on, they they have uh, databases filled with, mm-hmm. you know, your exact targeted promotional press and mm-hmm. radio people. And so I, it it was a relief I, to I, go ahead and I do it. I think you did a really smart thing. And I've always thought licensing was the way to go. And yeah. so I, I I was really marveling over that because I thought, well, she must have licensed that to Compass because yeah. I noticed that it was on Red House. And I thought, hmm, so yeah. good for you, I said. Thank good for you. you. Well, I, duh, I should have figured it out years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Now going back to your song for a second. Uh, you Your song, Through the Looking Glass. Okay. I, I was looking online and I noticed that it came out uh, in 1992. On the album of the same name, Through the Looking Glass. Mm-hmm. And then that album was out of print, and then it came out on Retrospecto, which mm-hmm. I love that name, in 2005. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't know if that's the same version that came out in 1992, but it's it this kind of little, it's a country-driven yeah. yeah. record, right? Mm-hmm. And then now it appears on your new album with a different production style. So mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, first of all, what encouraged you to revisit that song, which I'm sure has to do with this whole genre of the album of yeah. the voicing but uh, isn't it fun to go back and take a song and then reproduce oh, it god what a great opportunity from everything you've learned about yes yeah that and and also to see what withstood the test of time um, and there are two or, there are i think four songs on this record that were written from an earlier time period a dream time uh seculare is an older song and through the looking glass and um the other one we talked about I don't know. oh solitary singer yeah mm-hmm. And so it was a really, sometimes I look back at those things and, God, I wish I'd done them this way. (laughs) Now, I really liked the original version of Through the Looking Glass, and I was very happy to bring that song forward. It it was written in a really altered state of consciousness in New Mexico. Was this during your new age time? (laughs) It was was during the new age time, but also when I was experimenting with, you know, various... You know the difference powerful between Coke plants. and Pepsi. Yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> more like you know medicinal plants, <laughs> and uh, and that one was at the end of a long night of journeying with a 
you know, you know, with Carlos Castaneda, Bruja. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and it, it was like the story. I saw my life. I saw the road of my life, and and I, that's why I wanted it to be on the record. Mm-hmm. And it, it was Cisco's idea to kind of make it more up tempo. Mm-hmm. And treated almost like a little bluegrass song, and and I I thought that was was fun. It was sort of nice to have something on the record that was like up and well, the fiddle playing at the end is so uh, it's very I don't want to say juicy, but it, it's really oh I know I love he it. He does like this little Cajun thing. And who is it that's playing? That's Warren Hood. Oh, he's so good. Yes, so he goes good. out there, doesn't yeah. he? And then Kim Warner kind of playing off him with mm-hmm. the mandolin. It's so it's, it's so really musical. Nice production. I yeah. love it. That's one of my favorite ones on there too. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to revisit an old song and and still feel like it's got some life. Yeah. You know? You are married to the scholar, author, feminist, and UT professor Robert Jensen. And he wrote the 2017 book, The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men, which I love that title. And he's also written about white privilege and institutional racism. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? And do you two strengthen each other's processes or share each other's processes? Or have you grown off of each other's ideologies? Or We're not... We don't come at things from the same experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's so much more intellectual than I am. He's just plain, he's so smart and so well-educated in, in feminism. And, and I'm more kind of life-educated mm-hmm. in a way. I, well, everything I learned is just by getting whooped over my so head. you're kind by, of scrappy. Yeah. He's scholar. <laughs> I think I just learned by making stupid mistakes. <laughs> uh, it, but um, But he is... So much of what I do has been informed by him. I, 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 I really, I've had so much aha, so much overview mm-hmm. is is what I've gained from that. I think I just, I can't even remember who I was before I, I met him. It's, it's I, I've learned so much. And at the same time, we don't agree about everything. And, uh, mm. uh, you know, he's he's very pragmatic and, and I'm still, you know, experimenting with, you know, whether... He doesn't believe there's anything beyond this this life in this body, and I'm still I still am really playing around with you know with thinking about that and considering that and and still feeling like I I serve something and uh, so I, but he is the most dedicated person to the cause <laughs> anybody I know he he lives it he breathes it and and he does not back down. He does not back down. He is fearless. And so there's a lot I've learned from him. He does not take, he, he just doesn't, he's not afraid to speak his truth. And, and I still want, you know, I don't want people to hate me. You know? <laughs> I, I don't think anybody hates you. Well, I no, I, I think there are people who mm. really, who I do offend. And Well, I could see your point to yeah. this album in particular. Yeah, and there's a lot right. of men who just mm-hmm. think that this whole thing of dismantling God as male is ridiculous. You know, it's stupid and ridiculous. And there's a lot of Christians who think it's her- heretic. Mm-hmm. Her- heretical? Yeah. Yeah. So I, but at the same time, uh, you know, I'm certainly not in danger or anything. But I, but Robert is he's gone out on many a limb and and come, lived to tell the tale. Mm-hmm. But he's also he's very much in his he's an intellectual and and I'm an artist and so we're not the same. We don't come at things the same. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we both have a lot to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And how long have y'all been together? Uh twelve years now. Oh, so you're kind of like newbies. We had we're newbies. That's right. I think of us as being like old couple. You go home and tell him I said that. Uh, no, 
That's what no, we, we're definitely, we act like newbies. We are totally in, in love. So that's great. That's so cute. Your son, Cisco, toured with you starting when he was 18 on the drums. Yeah. And now he's producing and, and, and engineering your albums. And you have a daughter too. Did she tour with you too? or Delia she... has never toured with me. Well, though, when she was a little girl, I used to drag her out on the road with me and make her a bed on the side of the stage. Uh-huh. But, um, which, you know, we've had therapies to figure that out. But um, she's... She sings on the record, Delia. She's oh, one of the choir. Beautiful. She's one of the ones. She sings on Seculare, that oh, one of the beautiful voices on that. So beautiful. And she sings on Emmanuel as well. Do you think folk music is making a comeback because there's such immense injustice going on in the world? Or has it just changed production styles? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what has happened is it has expanded to be inclusive, mm-hmm. uh, uh, m- more gender and race inclusive. Mm-hmm. So that's going to change the face of folk music. But I, I, it's really exciting. I mean, it used to be that white people had to speak to white people about these things. And now, really, it's really not our time to, mm-hmm. to uh, for me. Although, I'm wondering if, it shouldn't, uh, if white people shouldn't step up more so because... Uh, especially in among my friends of color, they say, well, I wish white people would speak out more on our behalf because mm-hmm. that's the problem. You guys don't speak up as much as you should. Mm-hmm. So going back to folk singers, mm-hmm. raising awareness about mm-hmm. um, civil rights and, mm-hmm. and war, um, where, where's, I mean, your album does that. Do you think more people will have the ability and where... Where can we hear that music? How how can we get it on the air out in front of people? It's so hard. I I, I just did a panel at Folk Alliance and and several women of color were just saying, you know, um, well, it was interesting because one beautiful young woman said said she that she was frustrated because she felt like white singers were singing about her. Her races issues. Pr- her mm-hmm. issues exactly mm-hmm. and and that sh- that it that sh- it was frustrating to her she didn't want them telling her story mm-hmm. and i think there was a time when we when it was w- was important that we told their stories because nobody was telling them mm-hmm. but since there are so many of them coming up the best thing i think we can do is help them get in front of people mm-hmm. and uh, get them out on the stage get them opening get you know talk about them promote them mm-hmm. and and just basically that in that sense step to the side mm-hmm. I don't want to sing uh, about their I want to sing about being aware of their issues and being supportive but to tell their story it feels inauthentic to me at mm-hmm. this point now even 10 years ago I think I would have felt differently but it's shifting now there are yeah. enough of them to that and and they're powerful and strong and they and they're eloquent and they should be telling their stories yes I think that's what was so astonishing about Tracy Chapman, you know, in 1990, all of a sudden she appeared and had her first hit, Fast Car, was this social justice song from her point of view as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And it just broke everyone's heart. And it was so needed. It was great art. Yeah. First and foremost, like you said, it was a great song. And her delivery, her voice is so emotive. Yeah. You couldn't, that was all you wanted to hear on the radio. And every time you came on, no matter what you were doing, oh my gosh. Time stopped. Yes. And I think... And certainly, you know, Odetta, there's been a lot of women of color and men of color, too, who've been there all along. However, you know, now it is anybody's game. And I think that's what's exciting. I think I think you're right that it's our it's our duty to help step out of the way, but yeah. also support people if we already have the stage to share it. That's I, I really think that's mm-hmm. that's the position that we that we need to be in right now. And uh, and also the, the thing I've 
that I said to this girl, the panel basically was, this is your time, claim mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. you know, go ahead and claim it. You know, we're, we're, we don't, we're happy to step aside. Mm -hmm. if, if you claim your spot, we're happy to turn it over because mm -hmm. it feels right. You know, mm -hmm. it feels good to turn it over to you. You're, yeah. you, you and got they the have, mic. I think there are new and different ways to um, share your cry that we don't even know. Like uh, when I go on social media, I feel like, I feel like, okay, I got Instagram and I got Facebook and, you know, and I was on Snapchat for a while. And then I was like, there's too many apps and there's too many, but I watch my kids and they're just switching between them all. And they, they have so much information, so much yeah. to talk about. And they can talk about it in really short, little fast ways. I know, I and can't. so I think a lot of the artists coming up and, and have that sensibility that it's like learning Russian. They have a whole new a way of sharing music that we didn't have. I agree. I, I, I'm in, in awe of them. I really am. I'm so slow. I'm so two-dimensional. And I'm glad... You are not two-dimensional. No, I'm glad there's a place for me. I'm glad I have a booth in the marketplace. I'm totally pleased and proud and, mm -hmm. and you were honored. You yeah, yeah, I did. But I'm, I'm happy that all these other little booths mm -hmm. are springing up. Mm -hmm. In 1984, is that... Is that when you met Mark Hallman? And and it looks like you released a record together. And can you tell people who Mark is and and your history together? Because I feel like you two have a very important relationship. I I really do. I love to to wax eloquent about Mark because I don't get a chance to do it enough. And uh, I just uh, uh, besides the shopkeeper where I overwaxed, but which was I, a film a by film, Rain Perry right, about Mark Coleman. about Mark and mm -hmm. and about the industry. Mm -hmm. it, it's a the shopkeeper is a, is a is a film about the industry taken from the point of view of someone right there on the street who's experiencing the the changes of it, but someone who got in for all the right reasons, for all the love of music reasons, and did nothing but promote other people and in, out, of the, out of a desire to make the best music possible and creating an, an environment, a studio, and a community, and how tentative all that is, and how threatened it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's an amazing story, and I, I think Mark is the, the perfect um, figurehead for, for that story, and uh, he's really one of the unsung heroes, and uh, certainly in Austin music. Mm -hmm. And and I, I'm I'm glad that he gets the attention that that he is getting. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about. Him. We we met in the early '80s, and uh, when he, right when he moved down here, he's working with Michael Brofsky. We were both working with with the same producer. And we started working together, but it was more, I think the recognition of soul friends, mm -hmm. you know, was mm -hmm. there very early on because we, well past, we outlived all those professional relationships <laughs> and, and just had this soul connection mm -hmm. forever. And that will always be the case. That's and have y'all ever co-written? I know he's produced some of your albums. You know, he wrote a bridge on one song of mine uh, early on, but we haven't co-written. We huh. have not co-written. No, we, we, we did some, we just started, we were trying to make money in the, I think it was in the 80s. And we did. A, we started writing commercials together, and we co-wrote commercials together. You mean commercial jingles? Like yes, we did. Wow. We had a whole little thing, and we had some somebody was out selling them, pitching them, mm -hmm. and we had we laughed so hard because we <laughs> had to sell like frozen foods, and 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 then one was a spa place about because the word quality was in there. And we had and we <laughs> laughed so hard commercial? because every time we'd say quality, we'd both start laughing. We had to. We would spend hours trying to keep, to record these 
things because we would laugh so oh hard. God. Oh my God. So did you come up with spality? Where you put we were spa t- and that would have been together. good. <laughs> that, if you had been there, we would have laughed harder, I'm sure. Oh, we would have got nothing done, trust yeah. me. Yeah. Um, Morgan Morgan Spas. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, it's been so delightful having you on the show. And I have one last question, which we ask every guest on the show, um, which is, is there someone you would like to ask a question of? And then we will try to get them on the next podcast. And it could be anybody in the world. Let's ask Craig Hella Johnson something. That's perfect. Yeah. Let's ask Craig Hella Johnson does he see the voice as a sacred instrument or does he see it as a as a vehicle to tap into something that's sacred or is the voice itself the sacred thanks for listening to studio of the future i'm your host sarah hickman and our guest today was eliza gilkison whose new album secularia is out now you can also hear samples at studioofthefuture.org Thanks to Marty Lester for engineering, mixing, and editing at Everywhere Audio in Austin, Texas. Until next time, keep your mind and your ears open. 